Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. So we've got a problem here at Ruins of Empire HQ. After months and months of recording this free podcast novel, producer Sean had what we call a moment of clarity. Maybe it was because I ran out of money to keep his THC, alcohol, and Fritos morphine drip going. Maybe it was just getting to the end of this project and wondering what was next. Who knows? We're about to find out. The point is, the second book is about to start, and I need the money to get Sean properly medicated and productive. So right now, you can support this podcast by going to kickstarter.com, looking up Ruins of Empire, and reserving your print copy of Ruins of Empire number 2, Templum Venerous, right now. You can get signed hardback or paperback copies of Saturnius Mons and Templum Venerous, or just throw a dollar in to get your name in the acknowledgement section of Templum Venerous. It's a chance to show your support for this little project and a chance for me to get producer Sean drugged up and happily editing this podcast. Trust me, it's better for everyone. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, book one of the Ruins of Empire project a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author and Tyler Murphy. The story so far. The Perfunduloi and Urbanoi people of Titan are poised to destroy each other. To try and stop them, Kronos has come up with a plan for Isra to pose as their revered companio and, from the giant screens inside the city, order the people to end the war. But just as Vago, Althea, and Kronos put everything into place, something went wrong. Isra found her signal blocked by Vince LeBan and the Corporation, who agreed that the plan could go forward but only if a message from the Corporation were played for the people. Isra decided to scrap the plan, and ordered Althea and Vago to get Kronos out of the pyramid he was working in. He pleaded for more time to work, but as he did, a shot from the railgun outside destroyed the top of the pyramid. Vago attempted to rescue Kronos from inside, but managed to get himself and Althea caught in the process. Chapter 31 Even as the corporation consolidated control of the entire planet, something more destructive than anything ever seen gained strength. Records only hint about a growing problem somewhere in the heart of the corporation in the form of destabilizing economic trends, supply shortages, and massive inflation. The root cause of all of this is a mystery. All records that might contain that information have been either redacted or destroyed. For the historian, this is where evidence ends and pure speculation takes over. What event could have been big enough to deliver the death blow to a civilization that existed since before the ancient world wars? Theories are as wild as they are varied, and few can be discounted out of hand. From the Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization, by Martin Rath. More gunfire, more screams, this time closer than ever. It was all just beyond the door, somewhere in that clearing around the pyramid. Then, as fast as it started, silence. Kronos poked his head out from under the control console. The first rays of the sun emerged from behind Saturn and shone through a gaping hole at the top of the pyramid. All around him, metal, glass, concrete, and assorted polycarbonate alloys were scattered on the catwalk. Above, the winds blew shards of glass and bits of plastic loose that fell and clattered on the floor below. 
A fear gripped him as he slid out from under the desk and creeped to the edge of the catwalk to see rows and rows of servers. To his relief, the damage was minimal. The worst of it was a metal beam about twice as long as a man that fell across several rows of servers, crushing at least three or four individual units. In the vast storage capacity of a Marquis 8700, with its hundreds of units, three or four servers meant less than 1% of the total storage capacity. But for Kronos, looking at the smoking mess below, he felt a sorrow that he'd never encountered before. It was like the death of a close friend. No, it was something worse than that. It was the death of a person he'd never met, but who possessed a wealth of knowledge that he would never have access to. Knowledge that, because it was gone forever, was more valuable than anything Kronos could conceive of. A whistle of air drew Kronos's attention back to the hole in the top of the pyramid. The orange cloud swirled faster. The sides of the walls, now unsupported by the strength of completed pyramid, swayed just enough for Kronos to perceive the movement. They would never be repaired, not before they collapsed, not before the whole structure came down and the last server units to survive would be exposed to the Titanian environment. Petabytes, maybe even exabytes of data. Messages from an ancient golden age before the fall would be gone forever. Someone outside banged on the door again. More people trying to get through. More people who would destroy everything. He pulled up his sleeve and tested the radio. Nobody responded. Not Vago, not Althea, not even Isra. More banging. The impacts came once every few seconds, and they were strong enough to rattle the floors and walls. He was alone now. He was alone and, like the data he came to save, he was going to die. He grabbed his equipment that he managed to get under the console with him and pulled it onto his back. He was going to die, and so would most of the data. But he could still save some of it within the computers aboard Innovation. He would save something, even if it wasn't himself. He followed the catwalk to the opposite end of the pyramid where two metal ladders allowed him to descend into the spaces between the rows of servers. The space where the acolytes in their white robes once tended to them for a thousand years. Once on the ground, he darted from server to server, looking for something very particular. To get as much data as he could, he needed a central location. Somewhere where he could connect to the most available units. A place where he could access more data. He also needed a newer unit. Something they may have replaced more recently with the right ports, and he needed it as fast as possible. He ran along the rows with his hand outstretched, letting the tips of his fingers brush against the panels. His fingers traced the shapes faster than any human eye, the entire history of computer connectors passed under his touch. He stopped at a server panel underneath the catwalk when he touched a connection from the mid-21st century. He slipped the controller glove over his right hand and lowered his immersion goggles. He selected a flat, hexagon-shaped silver device from his bag, a portable microwave transmitter, and set it on the floor just beyond the catwalk, where it had a clear view of the sky. The six panels opened to form a dish as wide as a serving platter. One last thing, he had to find a physical data port on the machine itself. This one was newer than some of the others, but the connections were still archaic. It took some modification with his equipment, it always did with ancient connections, but he found a way to plug in. The immersion goggles flickered on, and his world was filled with billions of little yellow dots. They swirled around him like a galaxy of stars. He could reach out and touch any one of them and see the data they contained, and he longed to. 
He wanted to see the data with his own eyes before it was all gone. Old voice messages and texts. Spreadsheets and covert love letters. Company memos and family news. Corporate training holograms and small video files of children taking their first steps off a transport ship and onto an alien world. He pushed it all away with a wave of his hand. He would never live to see any of it. But if he worked fast, maybe a tiny section would survive for somebody else. He accessed the long-range transmitter, sliced in an innovation system, and used the security codes that Laban gave him earlier, the same codes that allowed him to unknowingly betray Isra and her mission. He had to put that out of his head. He did what he did, and he couldn't change that. Maybe Isra would forgive him someday. Maybe not. Either way, he wouldn't be around to notice. Inside the information centers of the ship, he found an unused sector. It was part of an auxiliary nav system, not something most ship engineers would notice, not without a complete system scan, and, if they ever performed such a process on the ship, it wouldn't happen until they were docked in Earth orbit. He established a connection and waved the galaxy of lights back. The uplink was live. Now it was just a matter of deciding which of the little stars of information to send. While he looked at the points of yellow light, he noticed something. There were people outside the pyramid, lots of them, but there was no pounding, no yelling, no gunfire, just a lot of frenzied discussion, and then an expectant silence. And, finally, a high-pitched whine, just on the edge of hearing. Kronos fell to the floor as the railgun fired again. This time, the projectile hit the metal door, ripped it out of place, and sent it screaming across the room, into the opposite wall above. The whole structure groaned and more pieces rained down. Several more crashes followed by an electric hiss signaled the death of more server units. Kronos lay face down on the ground and watched as thousands of little lights winked out of existence forever. Pieces continued to fall. They slammed on the catwalk overhead, but by some luck, the steel structure held. Kronos crawled through the shower of debris through the rows of whirring servers. Around him, metal cases collapsed under the weight of steel and concrete. Electrical systems shorted out and showered him with sparks, and more yellow dots winked out of existence. He crawled until he came to the edge where there was a metal door cracked open. Odd that he'd not noticed it before, but it was tucked deep within the server room, underneath the catwalk. Soldiers shouted and their boots slammed on the metal surface as they ran. Kronos started through the door, being careful to make no sound, and shut it behind him. Dim lights lit a metal stairway. Kronos followed it down, hoping that it might lead to a tunnel system where he could escape. Escape and leave these wretched people to their fates. The stairway twisted back on itself and ended in a circular room. The first thing Kronos noticed, with some despair, was that there was only one way, in or out. At least there was now. The silver cylinder that stretched the entire height of the pyramid was in the center here as well. Sliding doors were torn open and the crumpled remains of some sort of machine spilled out. It confirmed Kronos' suspicion of an elevator that ran, or rather used to run, from the base of the pyramid to the top. The acolytes at the bottom became the Veganto on top. To the people of the city, they defended the faith. But the smoldering remains here told Kronos that the only thing the Veganto defended was the status quo according to the Houston. Kronos stepped the rest of the way down the stairs. Fifty or more nooks in the circular wall contained metal racks in the shape of a stick figure. Every nook was empty and every rack stripped bare except for one. The metal arms still held the shiny black suit which was topped with a helmet that featured a ghoulish face, like a gargoyle, snarling at eternity. Back up the stairs, soldiers shouted in Titanian. 
Kronos couldn't understand what they were saying, but he was sure they were looking for him. They would drag him away and leave the data to be destroyed in this place. He eyed the Venganto suit again. It was the perfect tool for controlling people. It was technology just advanced enough to inspire awe and those who didn't have the means to understand it. The wrath of the gods made flesh and bone and able to burn the unbelievers in holy fire. It seemed uniquely compatible with human beliefs. Cronus smiled as an idea entered his head. The suit barely fit. The Urbanoi were shorter on average, with stubby limbs, so Crotus fit in surprisingly well. Still, there was some pinching and pulling in some new and unique places, but Cronus decided it was good enough, especially since there weren't a great many alternatives. He crept up the metal stairs, trying to keep the metal of the suit as quiet as he could. He pushed the door to the server room open with a careful ease, so as not to alert anyone to his presence. There was nobody nearby, so he slid inside and closed the door behind him. Shadows and sounds on the catwalk above indicated that there was a great deal of activity overhead. Among the servers, only a few soldiers patrolled. He walked out into the open, a place where the area was clear overhead. He would need an entrance. Something that would inspire the desired respect and, failing that, a healthy dose of fear. It had been long theorized that humans could fly on Titan. Kronos knew that. But he also knew it wouldn't be as simple as flapping one's arms. For example, they would need a touch of propulsion. He raised his arms. As if he tripped some sort of automatic mechanism, the armor jerked up and locked into place with the wings extended. He pushed his arms back down in a flapping motion. He felt a burst of air on his ankles and, to his slight dismay, he was airborne. He wasn't ready for it and his stomach rebelled at the idea. The pyramid left little room to maneuver and he did not have any practical idea of how to control the suit at this point. As he reached the apex of his arc, however, he found he could position his wings to control the descent. He aimed for the catwalk. It was hardly the most graceful landing in the history of avionics. In fact, it was little more than a slow, barely controlled crash. But it did have the desired effect. The soldiers on the catwalk all watched him with mouths and eyes wide open. A few of them gripped the handles of their clubs, but they were shaking so much that they would just as likely drop them and run if it came to it. Kronos felt like he should say something. You must all leave now. You desecrate this place. Leave and never come back. It sounded good to him, but the soldiers just looked confused. They talked to each other in their language, but none of them made any motion to leave. The problem was, Cronus was still stuck with his arms straight out. That was no way to intimidate people. He already knew what would happen if he tried to push his arms down. He tried pushing them forward, but the suit resisted. He twisted his left wrist. As he did, something shot out from the front of his mask at such a force it would have broken his neck if it weren't braced by the suit. A small orb sailed over the catwalk, hit the side of the pyramid, and burst into a shower of flame. There was a universal language there. Seeing the fire, all the soldiers ran for the exit. Even the few in the server room below practically ran on top of each other to climb the ladder and disappeared down the long hallway that led outside. Kronos rolled his shoulders back, and the mechanism that held his arms out disengaged. He took off the suit, and stashed it between the servers back down the ladder. He retrieved his immersion goggles and control glove and slipped them on. He had a few precious moments. He might die, but he could still save some of the data. Ten soldiers led Vago and Althea through the streets of the ruined city, while the citizens gathered on the sides to gawk or shout obscenities. 
The soldiers marched in perfect lockstep and looked ready to move the minute either Vega or Athea got any ideas. One of them Vega recognized. Hey, said Vega to the soldier leading the way. Michello, it's you, ain't it? The soldier turned his head so that just the edge of his face was visible behind the high collar. Silento. It's you, ain't it? I know it's you. Hey, where the hell are we going? Michello didn't turn his head again. He didn't answer, but just kept the steady pace toward whatever destination lay in front of them. Being captured, bound in chains, and forced to walk down the middle of the street was becoming a late motif on this trip. Vago's wrists were starting to chafe, but that was the worst of it. The Urbanoi that gathered on the side of the road, shouting and jeering at him, didn't cause him much worry. The soldiers didn't scare him. They were just glorified slavers in brown coats. Even the Houston didn't put much fear in him. Vigo walked down the street, hands bound, but his head high. He tried to share this confidence with Althea, who was being marched behind him. She kept her head down, as if trying to avoid looking at the crowds of people who turned up to see them paraded down the street. It's okay, he tried to say multiple times. They ain't gonna do nothing brash. They need us and they know it. They just don't know which side we're on. Issa's probably working in the Houston right now. This ain't a problem yet. She'll talk sense into him. But Vago's assurances didn't have any effect on Althea. She wouldn't look at him or anyone else, but kept her head down as the soldiers prodded her forward. They turned a corner and the big city square was in sight. What he saw put the first bit of fear in Vago's mind. This place was packed by a vicious, screaming mob. It was like every person in the city had gathered to watch something happen. Just from the mood, it didn't look like these people would be satisfied with anything less than blood. The real fear hit when the soldiers marched them to the stage. Kneeling in a row before a line of Urbanoi soldiers were Halifaco and several of his officers. Out in the crowd, he noticed a hundred or more Prufunduloi men and women gathered tight in the center being watched by a circle of soldiers. All around them, the people of the city yelled to the line, threw rocks, bits of dirt, or anything else they could get their hands on. The soldiers looked like they intended to keep the crowd back, but that was it. They had no intention of stopping any of the abuse the people of the city were heaping on its prisoners. The soldiers marched Vago and Althea onto the stage and clubbed them in the back of their legs, forcing them to kneel. They set Vago next to Halifaco, who leaned over and whispered, You needed a better plan. Vago shifted in his leather bonds. I'm sorry it lacked the subtlety of genocide and civilizational destruction. One of the soldiers stopped in front of him. It was definitely Michello. The soldier's old and scarred face was not one Vega would forget in a hurry. He just looked down at Vago and, with a touch of pity in his voice, said, Perdono, Vago. That was as good as a death sentence in his book. He shifted again and tried to activate the screen on his arrow suit. What are you doing? whispered Halifaco. Calling for help, said Vago. What might pass for it on this cursed moon? The Perfundule leader glanced around, as if worried that someone might spot him. How will you do that? Vigo winced as he wrenched his arm in an uncomfortable position to work the touchscreen. Luckily, they ain't figured out we got's computers attached to us at all times. Hell, I only know just enough to get it in trouble. He shifted one more time until he heard the radio pop on. Kronos! Isra! Vigo whispered. Somebody's gotta be on this line. Answer me! Kronos, are you alright? There was a burst of static and Kronos' voice came through. I'm okay. Where are you? I'm in the pyramid, set against the ruins, lost to history. The roaring of the crowd went quiet. Vigo looked over to see the Houston climbing the stairs of the platform in all of his splendor. Kronos, we don't have a lot of time. 
Get with Easter and figure out how to play the message. Do anything. We're out of options. There was a pause at the other end. Not enough time. And yet, infinite time soon. One transition to the other, like... The Houston stood in front of the crowd, who greeted him with a roar of cheers. Kronos! Cut the nokai bias! Listen to me, Kronos. Something bad is about to happen. Vago stopped when the Houston motioned behind him. The soldiers brought one of Halifaco's men forward and laid him across a wooden block at center stage. An Urbanoi soldier appeared from the other end to another roar of crowd approval. He was dressed in the same high-collared brown coat as the other soldiers, except his coat had a collar so high that Vago could only see a few strands of his hair and a touch of scalp. He was also carrying a large axe, the kind that wasn't used for chopping trees. That detail stood out particularly well in Vago's mind. The man approached the wooden block and the man laying on it. The soldier hoisted the axe with one swing. Less than a second, that was it. The crowd cheered as Halifaco's man had his head unceremoniously removed from the rest of his body. Halifaco yelled in his native language and struggled to get to his feet. It was just rage, of course. There wasn't much he could do with his hands tied behind him. The soldiers removed the body, which was still spurting blood, from the stump of its neck and flung it off the front of the stage. The crowd parted to let it fall, and then swarmed over it like a pack of starving animals. The Houston took his place again at the front, and continued to harangue the crowd. "'What's happening?' said Cronus's voice in Vago's ear. "'They're executing them, Cronus. Tadman Keral, they're killing them. We're next, Cronus. We're going to die if you don't do something.' Cronus paused again, and sighed as if he were being terribly put upon. "'If I stop my work now, all the data in the pyramid will be destroyed!' Vago fought to keep his voice at a whisper. Vago fought to keep his voice at a whisper. Don't care about the pyramid, Kronos. You want to know why? Because any minute these Murray Ekedin Yas Chuni Byak Morini are going to cut off our heads. Another pause. I will see what I can do. That's good. Hurry. And where the hell is Isra? Her voice snapped in his ear. I am here. You need to buy me some time. <laughs> They just grabbed another one of Halifaco's men, Isra. We don't got much time, said Vago's voice in Isra's ear. Isra closed her eyes and took a deep breath. She wanted to tell Vago that she was perfectly aware of his predicament, and the yelling wasn't helping. She couldn't let Laban know that anything was wrong. It was bad enough that she was the one walking back to the negotiation table. On the other hand, Vago would be the one with his head literally on the chopping block, so she decided to excuse the attitude for now. I hear you, Vago. Laban. Are you listening? I am ready to talk. Vince Laban's smug voice sounded in her ear. Isra Jacario. I must say I'm surprised. You seem the type that would sacrifice her entire crew rather than admit wrongdoing. Over her earpiece, she heard the faint clang of metal and Vago say, Hurry up, Isra! Damn it, hurry! Isra shook her head, ignoring Laban's shot. Help me save my people, and I will be willing to negotiate an agreement for resource extraction. Laban just laughed. You are really a fascinating woman. Your mission is at the brink of failure and your people are in mortal danger. And you wish to negotiate. Well, go on. I'm listening. Isra breathed deep. The city is to remain untouched, as are the people. We can designate a drilling area on the far eastern shore of the Legia Mar. Laban interrupted. Unacceptable. All our data shows the richest deposits are near the city. Vago's voice came over the headset again. Laban, if you let me die out here, I'll haunt you. 
You won't be able to bail General Gilgakekeske without me crawling up your ass. Easter slammed her fist on the table and immediately regretted it. It showed frustration. Fago, quiet. Laban, meet me halfway. The ministry renounces all claims to Titan, said Laban. The whole moon, including the city and its people, become official corporate territory. That is my condition. Ah, hells, said Vago. Easter, Kronos, you need to do something right now. They just took Althea. Looks like she's next on the block. Isra felt her stomach drop. It twisted her gut, and if there had been anyone nearby to see, they would have noticed her eyes become shiny with tears. In her mind, she wanted to scream, cry, burn, and destroy until the empty husk of innovation orbited a blackened, cratered moon around Saturn. Until this moment, she could have stalled. Maybe let Laban think that she might be able to accomplish the mission without him. But he knew she would never compromise her people. Kronos, she said flatly, Patch Laban through to the screens. You win, Laban. Titan is yours. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, the first book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Broken Reality by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. The same codes that allowed him to unknowingly betray, 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 betray my wedge. <clears throat> what brings us here to die?